Welcome to Community Vineyard Church Podcast, a community of believers who passionately worships the Lord Jesus Christ, declares His truth, and shares His life with a world in need. Now, for this week's message. also like to share share some something funny I read the other day. On their way to church, a couple, uh, on the way to a church to get married, a couple had a fatal car accident. And the couple was sitting outside Heaven's Gate waiting for St. Peter to do an intake, of course. And while waiting, they wondered if they could possibly get married in heaven since they, should, they couldn't get married uh, on earth. St. Peter finally shows up and they asked him, and Peter says, well, you know, I don't know. It's the first time anybody's ever asked to get married in heaven, but let me go find out. And so he leaves. And the couple sits there for days that turns into weeks, that turns into months, waiting for St. Peter to come back. And, and they start to ask each other, well, what if it doesn't work out? Are we stuck together forever here in heaven? And after another month, St. Peter finally returns, looking somewhat upset, Yes, he informs the couple, you can get married in heaven. Great, they said, but what if it doesn't work out? Could we also get a divorce in heaven? St. Peter, furious, red-faced, slams his clipboard on the ground. What's wrong, exclaimed the frightened couple. Come on, Peter exclaims. It took me three months to find a priest up here. How long do you think it's going to take me to find a lawyer? Yep. <laughs> Hopefully there'll be some some priests, some people who are qualified to marry others. <laughs> well, also if you are joining us for the first time, we have been uh, going through the book of Luke and I and it was pretty well timed, you know, obviously with the the holidays coming up and the Christmas story, you know, a big portion of it coming from the book of Luke. And so today we are going to pick up our series uh, in Luke chapter 22, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 22, and moving on. Yeah, you missed a lot. We're on chapter 22. No, 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 just chapter 2. And we're actually going to finish up, uh, I believe, chapter 2 today. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, let's just begin with a moment of prayer. Holy Spirit, we love being in your presence. We love um, coming here to worship you. We love reading your word. We love prayer. We love this beautiful thing that you've, that you've created for us to be in relationship with you, Lord. And so we just come before you, and we know that we're not here by accident. We're not here um, for any other reason other than to be in relationship with you, God. And so I pray that everybody here would leave this place today feeling closer to you. I pray that everybody here would feel uh, as though you've spoken to them today. And for whether it's comfort or direction or whatever it is, Lord, I pray that they would receive from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So, this is, a lot of people read this uh, section as part of the Christmas story, and I'm going to, it's sort of part of the Christmas story, but it does take place after, of course, the birth of Christ. So let me just read the first few verses. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now you'll see in there I I put in parentheses, um, in, uh, in parentheses and highlighted in red where these commands come from, where these different laws come from. First one comes from the, the book of Exodus, and the second one comes from Leviticus. And so we're going to unpack a little bit about uh, those as we get to them. But the first thing that I want to say, as we read the first verse, if you sort of spell it out, and you'll see this in different translations where they do line-for-line, word-for-word translations. A more accurate reading of verse 1 would be something like, when the days of their purification was completed. Because according to Leviticus 12, and this is going to be a little strange for some of us, according to Leviticus 12, verses 1 through 5, a woman was ceremoniously unclean for 33 days after giving birth. Now, it's 33 days after giving birth to a male. It's 66 days after giving birth to a female. Right. And well, it it seems a little strange. Nobody really knows exactly why this is. I have a few speculations. Some people's speculation speculated that just, you know, a lot of the purification and cleanliness like laws in the Old Testament have to do with like preventing germs, preventing infection. So a lot of people think that removing her um, that she was ceremoniously unclean was was a way of preventing further infection. Others speculate that it was a time given to the woman to bond with the child. We know now how important that time is, just even that skin-to-skin bonding with the child right after, right after the child's being born. But this was, I found this to be interesting. This is a Jewish belief. This is what I think one of the reasons why, first of all, that a woman would be ceremonially, ceremoniously unclean. But second of all, why there's a difference between men and women. So in Jewish culture, there's a belief that during the birthing process, a woman is so closely involved with the supernatural creative work of, of God that she would actually need time to recover from working so closely with the divine in birthing life. And because a baby girl also has the potential to partner with the Lord in creating life, the recovery time given is greater. To me, that, that actually perfectly encapsulates the supernatural miracle of giving birth, of actually being able to partner with the divine. And so maybe unclean is the wrong word. Maybe recovery is the right word in partnering with the divine. <clears throat> and of why is this helpful? Why is this important information? Because I'll tell you, as I was reading about this, all, you get all kinds of stuff when you're Googling things online. As I was reading this, there are skeptics and there are people who are attacking Christianity as a sexist religion because, uh, you know, supposedly God is sexist because there's an unclean uh, male child or, or, I'm sorry, a woman is unclean for 33 days versus 66 days. 
And it's important that we be able to refute the skeptics. It's important that we be able to um, sort of defend our faith when it comes to these kinds of things. And there's actually a lot of laws throughout the Old Testament that people will use to attack Christianity. It's important to know why we have them or why, why the Lord gave those laws in the first place and why some of those laws, in fact, many of them, that we don't actually follow as Christians. So... This period of uncleanliness was concluded with a sacrifice, usually a lamb, but it was permitted for a poor person to use a pair of doves or pigeons, which tells us that Jesus was born into somewhat poverty. As for the firstborn male being consecrated to the Lord, this was instituted in Exodus as a memorial to the Passover miracle of God striking down the firstborn sons of Egypt while at the same time saving and redeeming the firstborn sons of Israel. Moving on to verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which, by the way, the consolation of Israel was the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Who was Simeon? Well, the text doesn't exactly infer or say that he was a priest, and because he doesn't, it doesn't specifically say this one way or the other, I would suggest that he may not have been part of the priesthood, but he was part of the remnant. Now, earlier, if you, if you go back about a month ago, and I was reading from, from the first chapter of Luke, there was a remnant that was outside of Jerusalem, or not Jerusalem, outside of the temple, praying daily for the Messiah, praying daily for the Lord to move on their behalf, praying daily and waiting on the Lord to do something about their subjugation, not only to Rome, but to other, other institutions around the globe. They were praying daily for the Lord to do something. And it's very likely that Simeon was part of this remnant, since he wasn't specifically identified as a priest. <clears throat> Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus uh, to do for him, wait, sorry, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praising God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, twice in these verses, Luke writes that Simeon was influenced or listening to the Holy Spirit, which is a sharp contrast because keep in mind that this is coming off of a period of 400 years in which there was no prophet. There was nobody that nobody was coming forth with a word from the Lord. And then all throughout Luke, in the very the first few chapters of Luke, all throughout that, there are people who are being influenced by either angels or the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is a time period in which there was silence for 400 years, and now all of a sudden breakthrough. All of a sudden breakthrough. People are gathering together, praying daily for the Messiah. They're waiting. They're serving in the temple. They are doing the deal, so to speak. They are loving the Lord and, and still refusing to accept where, like, all the suffering and all the things that they see around them. They're refusing to accept that, and they're waiting for the Lord, and they're waiting for the Messiah, and they want Him to act. 
But why was he silent for so long? There's 400 years of silence. Well, I think it was because most people didn't want to hear from him. Of course, we had a remnant of people. And, and God had sent literally dozen or more prophets to speak his word to his people, to have them return to God, to return to all, not just the law, but the laws that resulted in a heart change so that people would actually begin to live their lives for, not Christ, but for God and in, in a way that would glorify the Lord. So over and over, there's all of the Old Testament prophets are speaking and trying to get the people to turn to God. And they kill most of them. I was trying to find what happened with Malachi. It does appear that Malachi was not stoned, but most of the other prophets were killed. Most people completely missed the message of the prophets or completely rejected it. And it is something interesting that the Lord will allow a people who have turned their back on him to experience the suffering of their actions. Literally hundreds of years of suffering, occupation, and death basically was the norm outside of the Word of God. See, the people of Israel, they had peace. They had a, a touch from God, a favor from God when they were acting within God's parameters. And as soon as they rejected God, God removed his hand of favor from them. They would experience suffering, and then, and then they would return to God, and God would put his favor on them. That was unique in the world. A, a, a world in which suffering, occupation, death was the law. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but... This is exactly what America is headed for. And, and I don't know exactly how it's going to manifest. It will surely manifest differently. And I certainly don't know the degree to which the people in this country will suffer. But it is becoming increasingly clear that America has a lot of parallels between this time period of Israel. And you have to wonder... How long is it going to be before the Lord returns his favor, before America turns back to the Lord, embraces God? There's a revival that results in God's favor again. Now, I also want to make clear, because I was talking with somebody this week, and I do believe that the further down this road America as a country goes in the Western church, the further down this road of like rejecting God and becoming Pharisees and, and, and religious people, I do believe that that will result in natural suffering. That will result in the Lord removing his favor. But for those of us who are living in America, it is possible for us to prosper while America suffers. For those who are a remnant, it is possible that the Lord's favor will rest on us and stay on us. For those of us who love the Lord, seek the Lord, worship the Lord, while at the same time causing America to suffer. So I just want to put that out there. Just because I see it, and I think most of us are already starting to see that America is not just going down a bad road, but is already experiencing the suffering of turning its back on God, that doesn't mean that we as Christians are also going to experience that. But over time, there rose a remnant of people who loved the Lord, who called out on behalf of the country, who met daily, who prayed expectantly, and who were waiting 
for the Lord to move. I want to just finish up this comment about Simeon before moving on to Anna. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many will be revealed and the sword will pierce your own soul too. What does that mean? Well, it it means a lot of things actually. But I think what Simeon is putting his, his, his thumb on is one of the reasons why Christ came. And it's one of the reasons why Christ himself says that he came, was to be a sword, to divide, some even within their own families. Of course, he came to bring about salvation. He came to give people access to the Holy Spirit and freedom from sin. But he came to force people to make a moral decision. You have to choose Christ or not. He came because it will his his presence, his message, his truth will cause some to fall and stumble while elevating others to a place of prominence. The last verse makes clear that no matter whether no matter whether somebody chooses to accept the free gift of salvation or not, that the truth and revelation that Christ brings will be a way to sift the wheat from the shaft, the sheep from the goats, and those who will spend eternity with the Lord and those who will not. There is a truth that Christ brings that will bring about eternal, final justice. And the only way to receive the righteousness of Christ and to actually have your sins paid for so that you don't have to try to stand before a holy God and give an account for them, is to receive Christ as your personal Savior. That's the bottom line. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way. If you do not receive Christ, and this is, He came as a sword to separate the wheat from the shaft. If you do not receive Him as your Savior, you are going to have to try to stand before a holy God and give an account for your sin. And that is not a situation that I want to be in. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There was a prophet, Anna, verse 36, the daughter of Penuel. I'm going to have a lot of fun trying to pronounce the names in chapter 3 when you get to the genealogy. Of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Notice, she only spoke to those who were looking for the redemption, who were looking for the Christ, who were looking for the Messiah. The super-religious holy people, the Pharisees, the scribes, they weren't, they weren't looking. They thought that they had achieved holiness and had achieved everything because, thank goodness, I'm not a sinner like them. I totally missed it. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, 
And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now, the title of my message today is, What Are You Waiting For? And it has two meanings. First of all, actually asking the question, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for a new revival? Are you waiting for the Lord to come? Are you waiting for a breakthrough in a financial situation? Are you waiting for a loved one to come to Christ? But the other meaning is, what are you standing around for? What are you waiting for? Like, why are you stuck? See, the more Israel strayed away from the Lord, the more others who loved God and who wanted God to move, people like Simeon and Anna and the other remnant, were not passively waiting. They were actively waiting. It's not like they decided that they were this remnant and that they were all alone and that they were going to retreat from the culture and live in Canada or something. They, they immersed themselves in the culture. <laughs> they immersed themselves in the culture and were right there at the temple daily. Passive waiting is where many people in the Western church have missed the mark. They look around the world, especially America, and it's obvious to everybody that there's something wrong, even if you're not a Christian. Everybody knows there's something. America's gone off the rails in the last 25 years, but it actually started before that. But it's become very obvious and in your face. But rather than actively fighting against it, not just in the culture, but spiritually, many people have just retreated, hoping that Jesus will return soon and that they're not going to have to do the work of evangelism. See, many people view waiting as a passive spectator sport, sometimes offering up prayers, you know, when they think about it or, you know, maybe mumbling to one another when they see something on the news, heaven help us. But God, waiting for God isn't isn't a passive activity. Actively waiting is doing things that the Lord has told us that we need to do and then waiting for Him to bring the increase or the results. It's partnering with His kingdom on earth and trusting that He will bring about the fruit. Many of us are waiting for Him to return, waiting for revival, waiting for Him to move on our behalf, or waiting for a situation to change. Or, from the words of Dr. Seuss, guy's brilliant. <laughs> the waiting place for people just waiting. Waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or a mail to come or the rain to go or, or, the, or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. Waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for the wind to fly a kite or waiting around for a Friday night or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake or a pot to boil or a better break or a string of pearls or a pair of pants or a wig with curls or another chance. Everyone is just standing around waiting. No, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. You'll find the, the bright places where boom bands are playing. Can you tell I have kids? <laughs> but what exactly is the bride supposed to do waiting for the bridegroom, right? Because that's the analogy. We are 
the bride, waiting for the bridegroom to return. And while I obviously wasn't the bride, let me tell you what I did while I waited for Kara. See, I mentioned last week, hold the applause, that she rejected me for six and a half years (laughs) and made me wait before she even agreed to go out on a date with me. So I had to wait. But it wasn't a passive waiting. It was very active, actually. See, I realized something early on. I realized when I first began to actually have feelings for her, and I began to pray about whether or not this was the one who the Lord might have for me to marry, I knew that she was out of my league. I did. I knew that she was out of my league. She's probably still out of my league. But it was even more so back then. I knew that I wasn't marriage material, I wasn't husband material, I wasn't father material. And, and sure, I could, I could attract some women, I could go out on dates if I wanted to. Um, but I knew that the caliber of woman, even if Kara wasn't, you know, the one for me, I knew the caliber of woman that I wanted for a spouse, um, was, was something that I was not going to be able to attract or maintain. So I decided to do something to change that. And as we think about our our relationship with Christ, as we are the bridegroom waiting for Him, I wonder wonder if some of us recognize that He's out of our league. I wonder if there's something that we might be able to do to maybe close that gap. See, I began to better myself. I began to do certain things to grow in my relationship with the Lord because I remember hearing from Tom over a decade ago that as two people grow closer to the Lord that they're supposed to be together, it forms a pyramid. You grow closer to the Lord, you grow closer to each other. This is a picture of marriage. You grow closer to the Lord, you'll naturally just look around you and you'll see who's next to you. I began to deal with unresolved sin in my life. I began to position myself to be more stable financially so that I could support a wife and kids. I went back to school. I began to learn about what it meant to be a husband. I began to spend time with people who had healthy marriages. And I began to spend time with people who had healthy children so that I could position myself to be a healthy husband and father. And yes, I waited. And believe me, I'll be the first one to admit I didn't always wait well. I certainly did things that I regretted during that time, but I was actively waiting to prepare myself for my bride. And in the same manner that I was actively waiting for my stubborn, beautiful wife to realize that she was, in fact, my stubborn, beautiful wife, we ought to be active in our waiting for the Lord to return or waiting for Him to move in your life. Or waiting for that breakthrough, whether it's a new job or a financial breakthrough or whether it's a breakthrough in a relationship. We ought to be active in our waiting. So I'm going to give you four things as we, as we close. I'm going to give you four things on how to wait well. How to wait well. The first thing is prayer. Waiting for God begins first and foremost with prayer. 
Not passive prayer, but active prayer. Well, what's the difference? Well, I kind of view passive prayer as the kind of prayer that I have when I'm like driving my car. Right? I'm driving my car and the Lord brings a person to mind or a situation to mind. And maybe I turn down the radio and I spend a few minutes praying. Right? That's kind of passive prayer. Active prayer looks like putting a like an actual time slot on your calendar to pray. Like this is my time to seek the Lord either by myself or with other people. And we are just going to pray. It's about being intentional, about setting time aside, almost as an offering to the Lord. And it's not an easy thing to do. I've gone through the, these waves in my life where sometimes I schedule prayer and I'm really diligent with that and then other times I don't. Thankfully, I'm in this mode where for, for many months or I don't even know for how long, I've had it on my calendar. How many of you guys have, have experienced the difference between having prayer on your calendar and not having prayer on your calendar? It makes a difference, right? I'm telling you, it will revolutionize not only your closeness and your relationship with the Lord, but it will revolutionize how, how the Lord responds to your prayers. It will actually change your heart more and more so that your prayers are actually God's prayers. And that's how God actually works on our behalf, by the way. You know, there's, there's a proverb that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will, and he will, uh, uh, answer your prayers. I, uh, I can't remember. Yeah, he will give you the desires of your heart. Right. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not good at quoting scripture. That, that doesn't mean that if you love the Lord, you can pray for anything and he'll answer it. What it means is, the more you have a lifestyle of prayer, the more your heart will be aligned with God's heart and then he will answer your prayers because he wants to give you the things that he wants to give you. And he will give you those things if your heart is aligned with his heart and your motives are aligned with his motives. It's about praying sometimes for even the willingness to pray. Some of us are like, yeah, I know I should pray, but I really don't want to. It's kind of boring or I struggle with it. My mind goes all over the place. Just start with praying genuinely. In your heart, pray for the willingness to pray. Pray for a heart for prayer. And, and if you really mean it, the Lord will begin to actually work on behalf of that simple prayer. But if you want to see the, like, your hopes and dreams, the things that you're waiting for, if you want to see those things actually manifest, you have to come before the Lord with a pure heart of prayer. It is the foundation of our relationship with the Lord. And if you want to wait well for Him, for His revival, for His return to move on your behalf, you have to have a strong prayer life. Some might even say that you can expect to get out of prayer that which you put in. Second, once you've got the prayer thing down, what will naturally happen, the more time you spend with the Lord, what will naturally happen if you don't have a lifestyle of repentance you will find yourself repenting. And I'm not talking about in a legalistic sense. I'm not talking about like going into confessional booth or anything like that. What I'm talking about is the more you spend time before the throne of God, the more you will realize your inadequacy before the throne of God. It's the same way Isaiah, you know, he just, he, he sees this. He's just before the throne of God. He sees the majesty of God and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. And he's just on his face. 
Sometimes that's what prayer looks like. And it's not just saying that you're sorry for something. It's actually taking action steps. If you have unresolved active sin in your life, meaning that it's, it's, it's premeditated sin, okay, then addressing it looks like more than just saying, I'm sorry. It looks like confessing it to a brother or sister. It looks like implementing some sort of program or, you know, or doing something, asking for help. It looks like something that is in an action, partnered with prayer. Repenting, and second, so it's, it's, it's first of all repenting for maybe your sins, if you have that, if you have a, an active lifestyle of sin, or, or, or uh, even just as sin comes up, because we all have things that come up. But second, it's also repenting on behalf of your people. Much like the prayers of repentance that we can read about for Israel in the, in the Old Testament and the prophets, we can intercessorily prayer or repent for the Western church. Our country, our state, and our community, even our friends and family, if need be. So repentance isn't always just about you. Of course it can be. And when you're before the throne, that sort of naturally happens. But then what also, what happens with Isaiah? He said, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. If you want revival in America, try standing in the gap as an intercessor and repenting on behalf of America. I mean, as Ohioans, we did that, right, with the passing of, of issue one. Like, we repent. I hope, I, I'm like still repenting. I still see people having signs up, and it just breaks my heart. I'm still repenting about that. And if you can't find the words, just read through Jeremiah or Lamentations, and just exchange Israel for whatever it is that you're praying for. Thirdly, listening to the Holy Spirit. You have prayer. You have repentance, and then listen. Prayer isn't just about speaking to God. It's about listening to God. If we live lifestyles of prayer and repentance, especially intercessory repentance, God will speak to us. He will guide us, direct us, but most of all, He will use us to build His kingdom, to invest into the remnant, to be a part of the remnant, and to prepare the world for His coming. But He won't... most likely isn't going to use you if you're not even listening to him. If you're not even listening to him and he wants to, he wants you to pray for, like, like Anne prayed for the woman in Aldi's. She was listening to the Lord. But if you're not even listening to him, you're not even going to know if he's telling you to pray for the person next to you. And this brings me to the last one, to take action. If he tells you to do something, do it. Have the, and if you don't have the courage to do it, pray for the courage to do it. Listen, if, if the Lord cannot trust you to follow through with little things that He wants you to do in your life, how likely is it that He will trust you with a larger task for His kingdom? He is going to be putting somebody else in that role, somebody else who He can trust. You know, I was, I was proud of you, Joe, last week you gave that word. The Lord gave you a word, and you had the courage to speak it. But if you wouldn't have spoken it, he would have called up somebody else. If you would have said, Lord, I don't have the courage to do it, I'm not going to do it. He would have drummed up somebody else to give that word. And that's how it is. He's going to use us if we make ourselves available, and if you're responsible with the little things that he gives you to do.
So do what he commands you to do. But that does beg the question, of course, sometimes we have difficulty hearing what the Lord has for us, right? I mean, I, I do. I'll be honest with you. I, I struggle hearing from the Lord sometimes, honestly. But what is it that he's told us to do? Well, many can find this to be very confusing, but it's actually really, really, really unbelievably simple to discover what it is the Lord wants you to do. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'm just going to share with you a few things. Uh, I'm probably going to share a list of like 5% of things, okay? But here are some things that the Lord wants you to do. He wants you to study His Word. In fact, that's where you're going to get all of these things. He wants you to praise Him. He wants you to rejoice always. He wants you to give thanks. He doesn't want you to be afraid. He wants you to abide in Him, to repent when you need to, to be reconciled with one another, to forgive one another, to pursue holiness, to love your enemies, love your neighbor. He wants you to seek first the kingdom of God. He wants you to be born again. He wants you to be baptized. He wants you to take up your cross daily. He wants you to become a disciple. He wants you to make disciples. He wants you to take care of the poor and take care of the widows. Just read His Word and you'll discover what He wants you to do next. That may seem like a daunting list. But if you're having trouble hearing from the Lord, just open the Bible. He will speak to you. If you're having trouble deciphering, oh, what should I do with this? Just study His Word. Just look in the Bible. It's the instruction manual. It's the greatest instruction manual that anybody in all of history has ever had. All of your answers are actually in there. All of these commands you will find the more that you read His Word and the more that you actually respond to what He wants you to do, the more He will give you things to do. The more you follow His commands from His Word, the more you're responsible with those things, the more He will use you in His kingdom. Some of you wonder why you're not being used as God as, by God as much as you wish, but it's because you aren't being responsible with some of the basic commands that He's given for you to do. But I also want to tell you, you know, if you're coming here and you're like, man, I'm realizing that I'm missing the mark. You're in good company. In fact, you're better off now than you were when you walked in. Because you're realizing that you're missing the mark. You're realizing that His commands are right there in, in His Word and you're not studying His Word. That's a good place to be. It means you're finally teachable. It means that you're finally ready to be a disciple. It means that you can finally open up His Word and you can read it and you can say, Lord, give me the strength, give me the courage, give me the power to actually walk in what you want me to do. You're better off now than when you first came in. It's the first step towards waking up. It's the first step towards being free to walk in the life that He has for you. So as we worship the Lord together, I want you to go through these four things. These are things that you can kind of do during our worship service and, and even throughout our week. It begins with prayer. If there's something you need to repent of, repent. Commit to taking action on that repentance. Then listen to the Holy Spirit. Just close your eyes sometimes during worship. I mean, worship's a beautiful thing. I love the songs. I love the music. We have some of the most talented worship leaders here. Sometimes just close your eyes and, and just listen. Holy Spirit, what is it? What is it that you want me to do?
to prepare for you, to prepare for you to take action in my life, to prepare for the second coming. What is it that you want me to do? And then let's pray that we'll have the courage, the power, the energy, the motivation to actually follow through with it. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Thank you for tuning in to Community Vineyard Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's message, click the share button and be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll be notified of our latest content. To learn more about Community Vineyard Church or how you can partner with us, please visit our website at www.communityvineyard.org. Until next time.